this podcast deals with true crime, I will be speaking openly and frankly about subjects such as murder, rape, and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. From, from your words, as Mr. Emmons quotes them in this book, it's clear that you were guilty of murder, and yet he says in all his conversations with you, he never heard you express remorse. Have you never felt it? Remorse for what? You people have done everything in the world to me. Doesn't that give me equal right? I can do anything I want to you people at any time I want to, because that's what you've done to me. If you spit in my face and smack me in the mouth and throw me in solitary confinement for nothing, what do you think's gonna happen when I get out of here? Uh, guilty. Hmm. I wouldn't do anything that I felt guilty about. You don't feel guilty at all? There's no need to feel guilty. I haven't done anything I'm ashamed of. Maybe I haven't done enough. I might be ashamed of that for not doing enough, for not giving enough for not being more perceptive, for not being aware enough, for not understanding, for uh, being stupid. Maybe I should have killed four or five hundred people, then I would have felt better. Then when I felt like I really offered society something. You know, if I wanted to kill somebody, I'd take this book and beat you to death with it, and I wouldn't feel a thing. It'd be just like walking to the drugstore. release from prison on March 21, 1967, Charles Manson received permission to move to San Francisco, where, with the help of a prison acquaintance, he moved into an apartment in Berkeley. Living mostly by begging, Manson soon got to know Mary Brunner, a 23-year-old graduate of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Brunner was working as a library assistant at the University of California, Berkeley, and Manson moved in with her. According to a second-hand account, he overcame her resistance to his bringing other women in to live with them. Before long, they were sharing Brunner's residence with 18 other women. Manson established himself as a guru in San Francisco's Haight-Ashbury district, which during the 1967's Summer of Love was emerging as a signature hippie locale. Manson appeared to have borrowed his philosophy from the processed church of the Final Judgment, whose members believed that Satan would become reconciled with Christ and that they would come together at the end of the world to judge humanity. 
Manson soon had the first of his group of followers, which had been called the Manson family, most of them female. Manson taught his followers that they were the reincarnation of the original Christians and that the Romans were the establishment. He strongly implied that he was Christ. He often told a story envisioning himself on the cross with the nails in his feet and hands. Sometime around 1967, he began using the alias Charles Willis Manson. He often said it very slowly. Charles Will is man's son, employing that his will was the same of that of the son of man. Before the summer's end, Manson and eight or nine of his enthusiasts piled into an old school bus that they had rewrought in a hippie style, with colored rugs and pillows in place of the many seats they had removed. They roamed as far north as Washington State, then southward through Los Angeles, Mexico, and the American Southwest. Returning to Los Angeles area, they lived in Topanga Canyon, Malibu, and Venice, western parts of the city and county. In 1967, Brunner had become pregnant by Manson, and on April 15, 1968, she gave birth to a son that they named Valentine Michael, nicknamed Pooh Bear, in a condemned house in Topanga Canyon. Assisted during birth by several of the young women from the family, Brunner, like most members of the group, acquired a number of aliases and nicknames, including Mariachi, Ach, Mother Mary, Mary Manson, Linda D. Manson, and Christine Mary Youths. Actor Al Lewis, best known for his portrayal of Grandpa Munster in the 1960s TV show The Munsters, had Manson babysit his children on a couple occasions. He described him as, quote, a nice guy when I knew him, unquote. Through Phil Kaufman, Manson gained an introduction to young Universal Studios producer Gary Stromberg, then working on a film adaptation of The Life of Jesus set in modern America with a black Jesus and southern redneck Romans. Stromberg thought Manson made interesting suggestions about what Jesus might do in a situation, seeming strangely attuned to the role. To illustrate the place of women, he had one of his women kiss his feet, but then kissed hers in return. At the beach one day, Stromberg watched while Manson preached against the materialistic outlook, only to be questioned about his well-furnished bus. Nonchalant, he tossed the bus keys to the doubter, who promptly drove it away while Manson watched apparently unconcerned. According to Stromberg, Manson had a dynamic personality, with an ability to read a person's weakness and play them. Trying to co-opt an influential individual from a motorcycle gang by granting him access to family women, Manson claimed to be sexually pathetic and convinced the biker that his outsized endowment was all that kept the woman in the group. On one occasion, the enraged father of a runaway girl who had joined the family pointed a shotgun at Manson and told him he was about to die. Manson quietly invited him in. The events that would culminate in the murders were set in motion in late spring of 1968, when Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys picked up two hitchhiking family women, Patricia Kremwinkle and Ella Jo Bailey, and brought them to his Pacific Palisades house for a few hours. Returning home in the early hours of the following morning from a night of recording sessions, Wilson was greeted in his own driveway by Manson, who emerged from the house. Uncomfortable, Wilson asked the stranger whether he intended to hurt him. Assuring him he had no such intent, Manson began kissing Wilson's feet. 
Inside the house, Wilson discovered 12 strangers, mostly women. The account given in Manson in his own words is that Manson first met Wilson at a friend's San Francisco house, where Manson had gone to obtain cannabis. The drummer supposedly gave Manson his Sunset Boulevard address and invited him to stop by when he came to Los Angeles. Wilson himself said in a 1968 Record Mirror article that after mentioning the Beach Boys' involvement with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi to a group of strange women, they told me that they too had a guru, a guy named Charlie. Over the next few months, as the number of women in Wilson's house doubled, the family members who made themselves part of his Sunset Boulevard house cost him approximately $100,000. This included a large medical bill for the treatment of their gonorrhea and $2,100,000 for an accidental destruction of his uninsured car, which they borrowed. Wilson would sing and talk with Manson while the women were treated as servants to them both. Wilson paid for studio time to record songs written and performed by Manson and introduced Manson to the entertainment business acquaintances, including Greg Jacobson, Terry Melcher, and Rudy Altabelli whom owned a house he would soon rent to actress Sharon Tate and her husband, director Roman Polanski. Jacobson, who was impressed by the, quote, whole Charlie Manson package, unquote, of artist, lifestylist, philosopher, also paid to record Manson's material. In September of 1968, Dennis recorded a Manson song for the Beach Boys, originally titled Cease to Exist, but reworked as Never Learn Not to Love. As a single B-side release in the following December, it was credited solely to Dennis. Angered by this, Manson threatened murder. When asked why Manson was not credited, Wilson explained, quote, He didn't want that. He wanted money instead. I gave him about $100,000 worth of stuff, unquote. Give up your work Come on, you can be I'm your kind Oh, your kind And I can see Walk on, walk on According to a Beach Boys collaborator, Van Dykes Parks, One day, Charles Manson brought a bullet out and showed it to Dennis, who asked, What's this? And Manson replied, It's a bullet. Every time you look at it, I want you to think of how nice it is that your kids are still safe. Well, Dennis grabbed Manson by the head and threw him to the ground and began pummeling him. I heard about it, but I wasn't there. As Dennis became increasingly aware of Manson's volatile nature and growing violent tendencies, he finally made a break from the friendship by simply moving out of the house and leaving Manson there. When Manson subsequently sought further contact, he left a bullet with Dennis's housekeeper to be delivered with a threatening message. Manson established a base for the family at the Spawn Ranch, a movie ranch not far from Topanga Canyon Boulevard in August of 1968 after Wilson's manager evicted the family. The entire family then relocated to the ranch. The ranch had been a television and movie set for Western productions. However, by the late 1960s, the buildings had deteriorated and the ranch was earning money primarily by selling horseback rides. Female family members did chores around the ranch and, on Manson's orders, occasionally had sex with the nearly blind 80-year-old owner, George Spahn. The women also acted as seeing-eye guides for Spawn, 
In exchange, Spahn allowed Manson and his group to live at the ranch for free. Lynn Squeaky Fromm acquired her nickname because she often squeaked when Spawn pinched her thigh. Charles Watson soon joined the group at the Spawn Ranch. Watson, a small-town Texan who had quit college and moved to California, met Manson at Wilson's house. Watson had given Wilson a ride while Wilson was hitchhiking after his car was wrecked. George Spawn nicknamed Watson Tex because of his pronounced Texan drawl. In the first days of November 1968, Manson established the family at an alternative headquarter in Death Valley, where they occupied two unused or little-used ranches, Myers and Barker. The former, to which the group had initially headed, was owned by the grandmother of a new woman, Kathleen Gillies, in the family. The latter was owned by an elderly local woman, Arlene Barker, whom Manson presented himself and male family members as musicians in needing of a place to congeal to their work. When the woman agreed to let them stay if they fixed things up, Manson honored her with one of the Beach Boys' gold records, several of which he had been given by Wilson. While back at Spawn Ranch no later than December, Manson and Watson visited Topanga Canyon acquaintances who played them The Beatles' recently released double album, The Beatles also known as the White Album. Manson became obsessed with the group. At McNeil Island Prison, Manson had told fellow inmates, including Carpus, that he could surpass the group's fame. To the family, he spoke of the group as, quote, the soul and, quote, part of the whole in the infinite, unquote. For some time, Manson had been saying that racial tensions between blacks and whites were about to erupt, predicting that blacks would rise up in rebellion in American cities, on a bitterly cold New Year's Eve at Myers Ranch, as the family gathered outside around a large fire, Manson explained that their social turmoil he had been predicting had also been predicted by the Beatles. The White Album songs, he declared, foretold it all in code. In fact, he maintained, or would soon maintain, the album was directed at the family, an elect group that was being instructed to preserve the worthy from the impending disaster. In early January 1969, the family escaped the desert's cold and positioned itself to monitor L.A.'s supposed tensions by moving to a canary-yellow home in Canoga Park, not far from the Spawn Ranch. Because this locale would allow the group to remain submerged beneath the awareness of the outside world, Manson called it the Yellow Submarine, another Beatles reference. There, family members prepared for the impending apocalypse, which around a campfire Manson had termed Helter Skelter, after the song of that name. When I get to the bottom, I go back to the top of the slide. You ain't no 
By February, Manson's vision was complete. The family would create an album whose songs, as subtle as those of the Beatles, would trigger their predicted chaos. Ghastly murders of whites by blacks would be met with retaliation, and a split between racist and non-racist whites would yield white self-annihilation. The blacks' triumphs, as it were, would merely precede them being ruled by the family, which would ride out the conflict in the, quote, bottomless pit, a secret city beneath Death Valley. At the Canoga Park house, while family members worked on their vehicles and poured over maps to prepare for their desert escape, they also worked on songs for their world-changing album. When they were told that Melcher was to come to the house to hear the material, the women prepared a meal and cleaned the place. However, Melcher never arrived. On March 23, 1969, Manson, uninvited, entered 100,050 Cielo Drive, which he had known as Melcher's residence. This was Altabelli's property. Melcher was only a previous tenant. In February 1969, the tenants were Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski. Manson was met by Sherika Hatami, an Iranian photographer who was Tate's friend. Hatami was there to photograph Tate in advance of her departure for Rome the next day. Having seen Manson through a window, he approached him at the main house. Hatami had gone to the front porch to ask him what he wanted. When Manson told Hatami he was there looking for someone whose name Hatami did not recognize, Hatami informed them that the place was the Polanski residence. Hatami advised him to try the back alley, by which he meant the path to the guest house, beyond the main house. Concerned about the stranger on the property, Hatami went down to the front walk to confront Manson. Appearing behind Hatami in the house's front door, Tate asked him who was calling. Hatami said that the man was looking for someone. Hatami and Tate maintained their positions while Manson, without a word, went back to the guest house, returned to a minute or two later, and left. That evening, Manson returned to the property and again went back to the guest house. Presuming to enter the enclosed porch, he spoke with Altabelli, who was just coming out of the shower. Although Manson asked for Melcher, Altabelli felt Manson had come looking for him. This was consistent with the prosecutor Vincent Bogolsi's later discovery that Manson had apparently been to the property on earlier occasions after Melcher's depart from it. Speaking through the inner screen door, Altabelli told Manson that Melcher had moved to Malibu, falsely stating that he did not know Melcher's new address. Altabelli said that he was in the entertainment business. Although having met Manson the previous year at Wilson's home, he was sure Manson already knew that. At Wilson's, Altabelli had complimented Manson lukewarmly on some of his musical recordings that Wilson had been playing. When Altabelli informed Manson that he was going out of the country the next day, Manson said he'd like to speak with him upon his return. Altabelli lied to him and told him that he'd be gone for more than a year. In response to a direct question from Altabelli, Manson explained that he had been directed to the guest house by the person in the main house. Altabelli expressed the wish that Manson not disturb his tenants, and Manson left. As Altabelli flew with Tate to Rome the next day, Tate asked him whether, quote, that creepy-looking guy had gone back to the guest house the day before.
as always, you can contact me at truecrimetruckerpodcast at gmail.com or join the Facebook group at True Crime Truckers Podcast. You can also visit my website at www.ageofradio.org backslash truecrimetrucker backslash. Also, if you would like to donate to the show and get yourself a True Crime Truckers Podcast sticker, go to www.patreon.com backslash truecrimetruckerspodcast. You can also find me on Instagram at michael.prit81. I will return in two weeks, so until then, stay safe.